Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth. A Place for Truth is a regular monthly meeting we hold on Zoom, which brings together Reformed theologian intellectuals for conversations around today's cultural issues in a public online forum. Enjoy today's conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the living God. You have come to the heavenly city. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God, God was pre-existent. He was not created. He was wholly other. It says that God created. He created truth. He created um, all things. In 1 John 5, 2, it says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In Psalm 119, 96 through 98, it says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. And in 1 Timothy, it says the law is a good thing. The title of tonight is, we call it the law of God, the foundational authority and abiding ethic for all of life. And one presupposition that we have as speakers here and myself and David hold is that God's truth is relevant for every aspect of life. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what does that actually mean? In what areas and how do we talk about what God's truth is and how does it apply to our world today? A couple of years ago, uh, the Founders Ministry led by Dr. Tom Askell came out with a a video that you may have seen. Uh, It's a documentary called The What Standard. Now, the, the title alone is kind of a giveaway to what the video is about. And it's they're dealing with some of the social justice issues in the Southern Baptist Convention, particularly. But the title of the video is called By What Standard, meaning what is our standard for how we agree or disagree? How do we know what is truth? How do we know what discernment is? How do we go back to what is the law of God in our life? And is it relevant today? We certainly will talk about more than just that question by what standard as we apply it to different issues tonight. We're not going to talk about anything less than that. Whose standard are we talking about? What is the standard? What is the law of God? So the theme is the law of God. And uh, again, as questions arise, you make sure you throw them in the chat. But we're going to start out here with um, it. Maybe I'll ask Dr. Sandlin to start out. Dr. Sandlin, what is the doctrine of creation as God's revelation? And why is it important for us uh, to go back to the creation and who God is in order to understand his law? In many ways, uh, the question, uh, your excellent question, could be reframed uh, to refer to creation as the foundation for everything. Uh, The Bible says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but in creating the heaven and the earth, he also created, uh, to use a metaphor, the operating system, the OS of uh, the universe. Well, that includes uh, his law, his uh, structure for the universe. Uh, it's woven into the universe. I mean, we today would consider the physical laws of thermodynamics and what we call the law of gravity, but just as important as, or more important than that, are uh, what we might call God's moral laws. Uh, but those are not simply, quote, natural law, as that is often understood by our Roman Catholic friends, but God's propositional revelation, his written revelation, his revelation in words, 
which occurred in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Some people have the idea that the fall was necessary before there was sort of verbal revelation to man, but that's just uh, plainly false. So uh, God's law is the way of, of operating uh, his universe. Now, I'd like to add here quickly, the um, modern idea that many Christians and others have of law is sort of the, the, the Roman notion of external political regulation. When they talk about obeying the law or passing laws, that's what they mean. And so when they encounter the word law in the Bible, that comes to their mind. But it really begins in the Old Testament uh, with uh, the Hebrew word for law in almost every case is Torah, or we would call Torah. And it doesn't mean that Roman idea at all. It just means the teaching or the instruction. Uh, you quoted earlier Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law, your Torah, or your Torah, that is, your instruction. So to speak of the law of God is not to speak merely or even mainly of external political regulation, though it does apply to politics, but rather God's instruction. So uh, Genesis 1-1, in that sense, in that sense, Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation is a revelation of God's law. The term law is used in different senses in a number of cases in the Bible, but I think it's important to understand that particularly in the Old Testament, although also in the New Testament, the law is the instruction. It's not something negative. It's not an onus. It's not a heavy burden. It is God's delightful revelation. It's woven into creation and uh, identically and more comprehensively uh, revealed in his written word. Very good. Now we see today many Christians unwittingly practice what we call, maybe refer to as a dualism. Why are we so confused about authority, law, and categories? And why is it so important to get back to what Dr. Sandlin has proposed, which is a propositional and creational view of law? Well, I would like to encourage folks to read this book. It's not a very large book, but it is a very important book Creational Worldview by uh, Andrew Sandlin. It is, it is a book that addresses uh, contemporary issues and contemporary errors. The contemporary errors that we have are errors that started from the beginning. And in particular, a major error that, that um, Dr. Sandlin addresses in his in his little book uh, Creation Worldview Creational Worldview is uh, the is the error of Gnosticism which creeps into virtually every facet of life. Uh, <clears throat> so, I think that it is absolutely crucial to get back to uh, Genesis and back to the creational account uh, in order that we might establish. Um, proper proper grounding for the whole of our Christian faith, because that's where the that's where the scriptures begin, and that's where life begins. We're all born into this world, into a creationally, uh, covenantally regulated, governed world. Yes, and, and so obviously it's not Eden, but it has some continuity with Eden. Um, but it is a but it is very much a um, a corrupted world, and so it seems to me that it's a that it's very vital that we get back to this. And and this, of course, has been a very major 
feature of some ministries such as uh, Peter Jones's Truth Exchange Ministry, uh, as well as some others. But I, from my vantage point, having having grown up in the church, uh, creation was preached and taught much more uh, regularly and much more fully in in my younger days. And I think, frankly, that we have in large measure in the church abandoned the teachings concerning creation uh, and focusing on the on the Genesis account and and it's spread throughout the scriptures as well as throughout uh, throughout uh, the order the ordering of God's created order uh, I think that we have, have lapsed from that in large measure because of the burgeoning rec uh, receptivity of evolution. Yes. And and the more we embrace, the more we see evolution embraced, the more we see distance and remoteness from the biblical worldview. Uh, all you have to do, for example, is pick up a book like... Um, Peter Enns's book, um, The Evolution of Adam. And, and in his final chapter, he, after he's denied the historicity of Adam, he, he makes the observation that our sexual ethics might need to change, including um, same-sex sexual ethics. So, so abandoning abandoning the biblical account, jettisoning it or recasting it to adjust and to fit a modern contemporary evolutionary framework is going to always uh, lead us astray. So I think that that is uh, why it is so absolutely vital. And I fully agree with what Andrew has said concerning, um, concerning creation. I, I like his I like his category propositional. Uh, there's a lot of debate about nat natural law um, and, and and the categories and the terms that we use, but there is a creational covenantal uh, ordering that we need to uh, feature in our preaching, our teaching, yes. and it penetrates every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. In Romans 125, it says, or 124 and 25, which of course is New Testament to a certain degree, almost a juxtaposition of Genesis 1, is finding sin as now human beings are creating morality. Uh, we could say that in a real simplistic way. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A minute ago, um, Peter Jones was referenced, and that, of course, uh, Romans 135 is kind of the, the, the theme verse for his entire ministry, uh, one-ism or two-ism. Would somebody give a brief explanation of what Dr. Jones would say from the creational kind of help us understand about why having a creational account matters in the area of morality 
and what happens when we don't. He's basing that on the notion of the, the foundational notion of the creator-creature distinction that we see right in Genesis 1.1. And when we begin <laughs> to blur that distinction, as all forms of paganism did and as today's neo-paganism does, then we don't see God as the lawgiver, the gracious and benevolent lawgiver, but uh, man himself has to develop um, his own ethics or derive his ethics from a perverted view of looking at nature. In today's situation, it's basically autonomous self-ethic, self-ethics, human autonomy, devising our own ethics. So um, that's why he argues for twoism. It's either one or two. And if we blur the distinction between the creator and uh, creation, then we develop oneism. And he would argue that we're moving, transitioning from a secular era into a neo-pagan era. And I tend to agree with that. Secularism essentially is a halfway house. Uh, people actually have to live in faith. Secularism is a faith, but an even deeper faith than that, either a false faith or a genuine faith. And neo-paganism has its own faith and has its own ethics. He points out he has some excellent articles and chapters on homosexuality and uh, how that oneism necessarily leads to homosexuality. Uh, I mean, you see it in the very word, right? Homo, uh, homosexuality, erasing these distinctions. So um, that's what Peter Jones has in mind. I'd recommend his writings. They're just superb. I think the thing I would want to add is that we need to learn to read uh, Genesis 1 along with Romans 1. And so noticing that when Paul says that since the creation of the world, God's in, uh, invisible attribute Buttes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Um, he affirms to us that every human being has some knowledge of God, and that knowledge comes to human beings through the created order. It comes to them as creatures created in God's image, and it comes through the rest of creation. And so it's expressing a union between God and human beings through creation itself. Now, when we understand that God's law is the expression of his very character, then we're getting at exactly what Dr. Sandlin's talking about, that, that the law of God in its broadest and most comprehensive form is seen in creation. So, that right there establishes that God's laws um, ought to be followed, that God's laws can be discerned, and, and that we don't create a scenario as Christians where we think that the unregenerate or the non-Christian uh, is unable to know anything regarding God's law. Yes. Um, they are held accountable on the basis of this revelation that does get through to them. Uh, and it's vital that we understand that because otherwise what we end up with is, is we end up in a place where we start thinking that the gospel is, is pretty much confined to the church and the gospel is just this spiritual thing that really doesn't connect with the rest of, created reality. 
that's what we're at, we get with um, evangelical forms of dispensationalism. This is what we're getting from reformed people who are advocating uh, two kingdom theology that um, frankly leaves the gospel and doctrine simply in the church and having nothing to say to the broader culture regarding what man as man uh, thinking now in terms of what Francis Schaeffer used to talk about is supposed to be doing. And, and so we read Romans one in light of Genesis one, God created human beings in his image, told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That creation mandate is precisely what Jesus fulfills in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We know that based on Romans 5, <laughs> if, if we're not quite sure. Paul connects Jesus to Adam. So these things unite our Bible, you know, and this gives us a much more comprehensive view of the Christian faith and life. Thank you for that. So then my question might be, Related to that, okay, I get what you're saying. Does that mean then that we practice everything in the Bible the exact same way? Are we supposed to do animal sacrifices again? Are we supposed to practice all of the Israelite, Israelite codes for how to set up the camp in the wilderness? How does that work? Yeah, that's... Uh... A question of what's called hermeneutics, but uh, I mean, there are a lot of ways we could go there. And Dr. Kennedy is a New Testament scholar. I'm sure you have something to say about that. But my view, uh, hermeneutically, the default is that we assume the continuity of the Old and New Testaments unless the New Testament uh, declares or implies otherwise. We know from the book of Hebrews, the sacrifices have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, those aspects of the law that separated Jew from Gentile. Uh, have been broken down. I think the Bible's very clear about that. Those particular aspects of the law that obviously could be practiced only in the land of Canaan, uh, laws of particular uh, laws of warfare, killing a particular people, and so on. Obviously, those have been set aside and have expired. But my point is that our, our hermeneutical default has to be that since the Bible's God's word, only the Bible can tell us which aspects of the Bible should or should not be practiced. We can't simply bring our autonomy to it and say, well, obviously God wouldn't do this in the New Testament or Jesus wouldn't believe this or do this because we today in the modern world would think that's odd. And therefore, we don't have to obey the Old Testament. If we're not going to obey the Old Testament, we have to have a biblical reason, either expressed or implied. That's my view. And in general, that has been the historically reformed view also. So does that yes. make us a, a theocracy then in our nation? Should we be trying to say, you know, that every nation must be a Christian nation in the same way? How does that work when we apply God's law to civic society? Do we force people to become Christians? Every nation should be Christian, but every nation will not be Christian. But to say that every nation should be Christian is simply to affirm what ought to be. And an element of God's law is, is the way it ought to be or the way it should be. Yes. So that 
a family, for example, is governed by the way it ought to be. And a nation ought to be governed by the way it ought to be. In other words, there is, there is such a thing as disobedience and disobedience to things that are endemic to the created order and did not have to be made known by way of Ten Commandments. For example, it was already, and everybody knew endemically as creatures made in the image of God, they all knew that to fabricate falsehoods and represent them as truth was sin. They knew that. They knew it was sin to take to murder an, another fellow human being. And, and so it didn't, these things did not become sinful because the law, the command, the, the law of Moses stipulated that they were sinful. The law of Moses codified what was already there. Yes. And except for, except perhaps for the fourth commandment, which is a different commandment. It's a, it's what we call positive law. And so it's, it's a little bit different from the others. Uh, but it's, but it's nonetheless already foreshadowed and anticipated in the created in the creation week. Um, even that we could talk about later. So, for example, when we come to Romans 1, every one of us, by virtue of being made in the image and likeness of God, every one of us bears within ourselves a sensus divinitatis, as Calvin would speak of it, a sense of deity. And, a, and that sense of deity entails a sense of what is right and wrong. So when I when I was when I first committed my first sin of lying, nobody nobody had to tell me um, that I should feel some guilt. I it was the guilt was intuitive. The guilt was the guilt was instinctual. Um, why? Because that's the way God has made us, and so we bear we bear in our own bodies the imprint of god's law and so for example in romans 1 to come back there paul speaks of males and females engaging in things that are contrary to nature or to use um, andrew's expression contrary to propositional law but the propositional law is not something that is imposed from the outside it is right. it is it is intrinsic to the way god created things yes. so that so that he made male and female the way he made them so that they fit together and it's not it's not a mystery why um why sexual activity and engagement between two males or between two females is uh, offensive to God, it is, and, and I don't think that we, I don't think that we have a proper depth of sense of how, of how anti-creator that act really is. Yes. It is, it is an utterly repulsive thing because it is contrary to nature. They don't fit together any more than a male or male 
plug fits with a male plug. As okay. a matter of fact, we call them male plugs and female plugs for reasons. And even as a child, as a matter of fact, I learned, I learned a lot about these things by watching my dad work with electrical plugs right. and learning male, female. Oh, that's uh, makes sense. So, so Paul can speak of this and and when Paul speaks of this in Romans 1, he's not depending upon another biblical text to say this. He's depending upon nature, the way that God designed his created order. So Paul can speak of this as, as contrary to nature, and, and nobody's... Nobody has to, nobody's going to say, oh, but Paul, you're going to have to help us understand this. We all understand it. And, and therefore, when two, two males or two females engage in sexual activity between themselves, they are doing it very deliberately. This is not, this is not a, an accidental defiant act against God. This is a very calculated defiant act against God. And we need to underscore that. And there are all kinds of these things within within nature. For example, we've talked about <clears throat> we talked about Marxism and things like this. Capitalism is endemic to God's created order. Amen. Marxism is antithetical to God's created order. Why? Because God has put it into the very order of things and within our own beings the sense that our labors ought to be re properly rewarded and proportionally rewarded. And, and whatever you call that, whether you call it free market, uh, free market uh, economics or capitalism or whatever, it's endemically there in created order as well as scripture. Scripture itself reinforces that, not by those terms, but nonetheless, Scripture reinforces that. Paul makes it very clear. Um, one who ministers in the Word is worthy of his hire. Um, and, even, and even the um, Old Testament speaks of the, uh, of, the, of the ox that treads out the grain. It ought to be, uh, ought to be properly uh, and proportionally fed. So these things, even, even the treatment of animals, is part of God's law. And it's and it's it's universally made known. It is not something that we have to learn from Scripture. It's Scripture reinforces it, but it's something that we know because God in, imbued His created order with it. So that my my question would be related to that, and we're going to hit some other topics too on this. But so then we talk about the the classic formula that we utilize is law and gospel, right? So we talk about, um, let's say we've got uh, two people that have totally, let's say homosexuals or people that uh, in our culture, like today, there's so many unnatural type sins that are going on that are just going against the created order. And we say, uh, let's just say in, in a rate comfort sort of way, we bring them back to the law of God. Is that the moral law that we should be bringing people back to? Certainly that's scriptural and it codifies that. Or should we, are you saying that part of confronting people or bringing people back to truth is to bring them back to the creational law? Well, if I may, um, 
make some distinctions. One, when the scriptures speak of law and when we speak of law, we have to we have to be careful to make clear what we mean, because it's entirely possible, as scripture uses law, to use law in the broadest sense of God's law, of the way that of, of the way that God has ordered things. So, so the scriptures speak like that. Paul speaks like that. But all, also, the scriptures use the term law to refer to scripture. So, so for example, Jesus says, mm -hmm. do, not, do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. No, no, I have come to fulfill them. He's not speaking about, he's not speaking about two different things, the law in some sense, and then the prophets. He's speaking about scripture. Law and the prophets is is a is a Hebraic Jewish first century way of speaking of scripture. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the law and the prophets, sometimes it's the law of the prophets and the and the writings, or the law of the prophets and the Psalms, and, and then sometimes it's simply the law. So for example, Paul can speak of speak like that when he's speaking in 1 Corinthians 14 about the place of and the role of women within the uh, framework of the uh, the church and he's and he speaks simply of the law and then and then another way that the scriptures use law and paul often uses law this way and and that is and that's that is i think what's what you're referring to eric when you speak of the law and the the law and the gospel the law there has to do with covenant. And so when Paul is what Paul is dealing with, for example, in his letter to the Galatians, as well as in large measure his letter to the Romans, is a misunderstanding of the law, covenant. I mean the the, the Judaizers error was not fundamentally was not fundamentally a works righteousness their law, their law, their their fundamental problem was that they regarded the law as an end in itself. Yes. But Paul is arguing, no, the law is not an end in itself. The law ends in Christ. The law points to Christ. You see, Jesus himself points this out. You read the scriptures because in the because you think that in the scriptures you will find eternal life. You're treating the scriptures as an end in itself, and you're treating the law of Moses as an end in itself. But they point to me, and so so we have to we have to make sure that we understand what is being referred to. Is it the law covenant? Is it law as scripture, or is it law in this in the broadest possible sense? the law of God, the way that God has ordered things. So those are, those are distinctions that we need to keep in mind as we, as we enter into any discussion concerning law. Uh, Eric, a real problem too, that was great, Ardell, thank you, is the Lutheran idea, and some Reformed hold this view, that everything in the Bible that mm -hmm. requires is a theological category known as law, and everything that is passively received without a requirement is gospel. Right. And this becomes for them uh, hermeneutical categories, theological categories. In fact, Luther even says you can read everything in the Bible in terms of either law and gospel. Well, you can create those categories if you want, but just don't try to impose them on the Bible, because in the Bible, law is gracious. Yes. It's God's gracious revelation of his truth. 
And don't say that the gospel does not carry requirements. If nothing else, it carries the requirement that we submit in faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So in the Bible, the gospel, although entirely the message of the gospel is entirely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, nonetheless, it certainly does impose requirements on man. No early apostle would say, well, if you trust in the gospel, there are no requirements whatsoever. I mean, that obviously is just flatly false. So it's possible to preserve and necessary to preserve salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, while also denying this Lutheran idea of a fundamental law gospel distinction. Mm-hmm. Amen. Eric, Eric, if I might add to that, uh, that was great, Andrew. Um, if you think about going back to Genesis 1, God commands, right? He creates, he creates by commanding, right? And he creates man, male and female, in his image, and then he commands them. So this is prior to sin. This, this is, if you think in terms of God's grace saving from sin, well, guess what? God, God's law was given before sin, um, and in itself is a kind of grace, a kind of generosity by God directing the male and the female. And then when you think in terms of, of salvation, well, what, what does God say prior to giving the, the Ten Commandments? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Well, that's grace. That's, that's the gospel. And then the law, the Ten Commandments, follow it. So that there, it is a fundamental, I would argue, a fundamental hermeneutical mistake to set law and gospel into two different categories. They, what we need to do is shift the lens, so to speak, and operate with a different category and, and speak of these things as organically united. Mm. Uh, the, 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 that notion of, of organic or, or thinking in terms of uh, doctrine as an organism uh, was a hallmark feature of the thought of B.B. Warfield. Um, he wasn't alone in that. There are others that, that embraced it as well. Um, but he, he emphasized it very clearly. And, and if we would think more along those lines... I think we would find ourselves on a much firmer footing, a more a more scriptural basis in our thinking patterns, because law and gospel are are not juxtaposed. They are not two different categories. Jesus said, "If you love me, you will obey my commandments," uh, and that's a another example of that organic union. And if I may follow up on that, to to bring it to bring it one step further, I think David is exactly right. And then that's why we need to speak in terms of covenants. Yes, they are they are both covenants from God, and they are and the law covenant is 
is more the stock and the and the new covenant which entails the gospel is the flower and so that so that they are organically connected Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you can't have the new covenant without the without the yeah. former covenant. Yes, and and there's no point to the former covenant unless it's followed by the new covenant, and yes. thus and thus the Lutheran categories and the classical dispensational categories of law, gospel, and and the two and the two kingdoms view that has intruded into the reform camp. Um, of the law gospel antithesis mm-hmm. is is simply not, in my estimation, supported by Scripture. There are categories, the law and the and the gospel, if you, if we're thinking in terms of covenant, but mm-hmm. that's the, the that's the axis upon which we must think, not in terms of demand and uh, grace. Yes. The gospel is the gospel is demanding and the and the law covenant is is very clearly a, a covenant that entails grace but it is precisely i didn't i didn't address this in any deep way in that in my conference uh, presentations at uh, at the common slaves conference but the reason that people have so much difficulty with what Tom Schreiner and I say and argue in the race set before us is they are thinking in terms of com- completely different categories. Yes, they are yes. thinking in, in law gospel categories as though law gospel are antithetical. And and Tom and I are not thinking that way at all because we're, we are thinking in the biblical framework that the gospel makes demands and when it makes demands it is not imposing some kind of foreboding law god right. it's 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 demands that are co- completely co- in concert with covenant the very first covenant that god made entailed a command you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that right. is when adam and eve were in grace <laughs> They yeah. were not yet fallen, and so Correct. the very, the very, the very first covenant entails a command, a prohibition, which, of course, necessarily bears within itself a full implication of a positive, and that is eat from the tree of life as much as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm fully in concert with uh, Andrew and um, David on that. It's it is these things we have to we have to underscore over and over again to make sure that our children and those in our church do not fall prey to the notion that commands are uh, that old bugaboo yeah. law I, let me add one thing to that if you think about the truth that the order in which things come in the bible is crucial Okay, and the first command that's written in Scripture is not a prohibition. It's a positive command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so what God is telling us is that that his commands are life. Life goes with his commands. 
life goes with his law. That's crucial to understand. And then I might add, too, that if you look at Jeremiah 31, which the writer of Hebrews quotes from at least twice, if I'm recalling correctly, Jeremiah 31 tells us fundamentally that the when you think of the continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Covenant, that the fundamental difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the way in which the covenant is administered. Yes. And I might add the covenant law is administered. Yes. So it, it's not that law is left in the Old Testament. It, it's that or that God's covenant is left there, but rather it's fulfilled in Jesus, and the application of the law to God's people is now no longer external, but it's internalized through the Spirit of God. You add to that the truth that Paul says in Romans 2, that the works of the law are written on the hearts of all human beings. But what's the fundamental difference between every human being and those who are regenerate, it's that it's not just the works of the law that are written on the heart, but it's the actual law itself written by the Spirit of God on the hearts of his people that enables them to obey the law through Jesus. That's the gospel. And by the way, in the New Covenant, that insertion of the law in the heart, it's not some different law in content. Correct. It's very clear. The law is placed in the heart. It's not as though... There is some, some new law that is being placed. It's the new covenant, but right. the law that is placed is the revelatory law of God. That's quite plain from Jeremiah and also Paul citing it in the, in the New Testament. We are at about the halfway point here. And uh, just to summarize so far, uh, again, what we mean by the word covenant is we mean it is a it's God's condescension to his created people. It's how he... Um, uh, would be the right way, codifies, for lack of a better word, the relationship. It's, it's, a, um, it's an agreement made before witnesses for life with both blessings and cursings associated. So when we say that, it, it, in one sense, the marriage covenant is very similar to that. You know, you, two young people don't just decide one day they're going to get married. Agreements from life that are, that are both a blessing, a positive, but also the warning. You know, this is not a... This isn't like signing a credit card where at the end of the transaction, you're done at this relationship. It's for life, for better, worse, richer, or till death do us part. So in general sense, the covenant, that's what we're talking about. Um, in case anyone, and, and I don't want to be presumptuous here that, and this is where I'm going to transition on a little bit here. For many of us who grew up in the church, or maybe we didn't, these categories are new to us. Or... Um, and they sound like a great idea. My question would be, maybe as we move a little bit, transition a little bit, would be, what are the errors in our thinking when we don't follow this? Meaning, I'm going to ask Bob Goldberg a question here, because I know this is something you and I have spoken at length, Bob. Um, liberalism. What law does liberalism, let's just, let's just talk about our, our context, we have the same alma mater, uh, you know, not, we don't have to mention it necessarily, but uh, you know what school I'm talking about, and we would say they have a Christian name, but functionally they follow a different law. How does somebody become liberal? What is the danger of not having these right categories? What is the danger? Uh, why is this not merely an optional thing, if that makes sense? 
Oh, I think part of the part of the reason why uh, thinking of just Christian organizations that begin to go in a liberal direction, uh, they they don't have an understanding or a belief in the sufficiency of the Scripture. Yes. So then they are by their own reasoning they they begin to look outside the Bible for uh, propositional truth or truth to sort of guide their decisions or what they will do. Uh, and so then, then they just begin that road of uh, straying farther and farther from God's truth as the standard. Uh, although, all the while giving, giving in a sense, lip service to God's word as being his word, being an authority, authoritative in some sense, but all the while moving in the other direction because they don't see it as sufficient for uh, for life and godliness and uh, the call of Christian life. So what you're saying is basically we will follow a law. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody is a you could say everybody's a theologian. Everybody has a standard by which they live their lives. It just depends on uh, what is that theology, and, and then what is that standard you derive from from your theology. Here's another one, and, and I'm going to go um, mask mandates. Um, a number of uh, I receive now on average of, uh, well, now it's even, it's even more. It's almost every day I get an email or a message from somebody, a Christian somewhere, who is talking to me about the concerns they have that their church is mandating masks. And they have instinctive concerns with that, um, especially when they realize um, the not only the, the, the science on them really isn't there, but also just the, the concern for the, um, the potential conflict that will be created within the church. When we mandate masks or when people have now, and when we talk about mandating, we're not talking about optional. We're talking about now it's a new law. What law are they following? Or what laws could they be following? Well, they will say it's the law of love, but I, I must say a, a, a text that's very helpful of this is Mark chapter 7 and elsewhere, the parallels in the gospel. Uh, I'm not saying this is true in every case, but it's a Pharisaic tendency to go beyond the written law of God and sort of impose human requirements as though they are God's law. And if you'll see what Jesus Christ said there in Mark chapter 7, it's uh, fairly dire in his denunciation of Pharisees who replace writ God's written law uh, with their own laws. Uh, whatever one may believe about uh, masks, the, the, the idea that the church could sort of impose them, uh, in my view, is a very dangerous precedent. I certainly think they should be permitted in the congregation. If people want to wear them, they certainly should be free to do that. But the imposition of masks, I think, particularly with the rationale where we're really showing love to our Christian, even if they're not necessary, even if they're not helpful, they're a statement of love. Well, that's we have a name for that, actually, in the last few years. It's just virtue signaling. It's just sort of a Christianized version of virtue signaling. And it's not necessarily showing love at all. Uh, it's not showing love to people who don't believe in the necessity of wearing masks, that's for sure. Uh, I've written, and these other men have written on this uh, number of things, but uh, that's, I think, a short answer to that. So the danger is, <clears throat> why is it dangerous 
to make it a mandate. Meaning, if you follow that, why is it a dangerous precedent to do within a church? Because because anything that competes with the word of God for a binding authority is a threat to divine authority. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying there in Mark chapter 7 and elsewhere. Uh-huh. Now, for the elders to say, we might recommend this, but we're not going to require it. Well, that's one thing. We'll require it. That's one thing. But to elevate these things to requirements is really to offer an alternative authority uh, to the written law of God. And that is a severe, severe theological and practical error. Yeah. And I, I, I was going to say, if I could add, I was just, I think I've shared in some of our meetings that uh, for the, especially for the government, and, and I, I, I think that's a good point that Andrew's bringing up for the, uh, the elders to sort of overstep their bounds and to mandate and, and uh, do it, but um, for the government also to come into the church and to say, yes. you, you must do this, you must mandate masks, and, and then that imposes upon the local church uh, that if you're going to follow the government, then the government mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. in practice telling you how to do church discipline. That's correct. Right? Because you, you now are obligated, if you follow that, when someone shows up at your door, a church member, and yep. they don't have a mask on, and they don't want to wear a mask, you you then have to say you cannot come to church. Right. And that's a that's a strong form of church discipline to say you're mm-hmm. not allowed in worship. And so we have the government then now really giving to the church uh, how it needs to practice church discipline. Yep. And, and I do that as a a leader or pastor and and we can and we can add to that but and bob's right spot on correct on this um you can add to that then that you've also turned over to the government uh the elements of worship (laughs) because you've you're you're requiring this mask in order for the worshiper to enter worship well you you've just established that as an element of worship then so now, now what you've got is the government running the church. Right. And, and what's really sad and frightening in my estimation is how much this is taking place today in allegedly conservative churches where the, where the leaders do not recognize that this is in fact what they're doing. Uh, and I would add one more thing. What all of this reveals is that every form of of law is a form of government, and it is unnegotiably a demonstration of a God that you serve. Yes. So, so when we start talking about or getting nervous about theonomy or theocracy, we need to recognize that there's no such thing as any form of government that is not in some sense a theocratic government. It's just a matter of who the theos is that's being served. Yes. If we can go back to something that Bob said earlier on, and, just, and just frame this in a slightly different way, but in full full concert with what has been said, but just cast it in a slightly different way. Bob spoke of 
the fact that what is happening is that the, that the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture is being surrendered. Mm -hmm. And and what and as I think as I think of it, what we need to think of is this: is that either we have, either we acknowledge Scripture as our canon, or we allow other canons to intrude. And yeah. as soon as we allow another canon to intrude, Scripture is no longer our true canon. And what's happening, for example, with the mask mandate, is that Christian churches elders pastors are appealing to science well science is not a canon there okay. there are there are, science does science is a field of study science has its own canon but its canon is ever shifting mm -hmm. and ever changing with the research english literature has its canon but its canon is expanding. Christian theology has a canon, and it is, it is finished. It is, it is complete, and it is authoritative and sufficient. And so, so what's going on, I think, is that fields of study, disciplines, are rivaling Scripture, and Christians are surrendering their allegiance to competing uh, canons yes. and they are and they're accepting the canon of um, Dr. Fauci or Foey <laughs> I prefer a little bit of French there with Italian um, and and he's shifted and changed throughout the last nine months mm -hmm. so there's no he's not a canon but churches are surrendering themselves to these things. And it's very easy for us individually to do the same thing with, re with regard to things that, that we might prefer to go this way or that way when Scripture gives us clear, unadulterated guidance on, on things. When we, allow, when we allow anything to intrude into the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, we are overthrowing the divine authority. So I think that that's, that's just another way of saying what these gentlemen have already said. So what is the, um, how about, I want to talk about a couple other theological errors or principles that we have. What is, what then is it related to law is legalism? Yeah, okay, I think I can answer that. There are at least two answers. One, turning the law into a system of uh, works righteousness and replacing Christ and his uh, sufficiency. Uh, I think when you read Paul, in particular in the New Testament, you need to understand that Paul never opposed, never, the revelatory law of God. Uh, the Old Testament is God's revelation. What he was supposing was... Uh, Judaic uh, twisting of uh, of God's law. Uh, so I think that's one definition of legalism. Another is one to which we've already referred, and that is adding to the law of God and, in essence, positing what Ardell pointed out as competing canons or an authority of God's law that we establish, authority of human law 
humanly devised law that we have established on a par with, but eventually replacing the uh, the written law of God. Those, of course, are very dangerous. Uh, so certainly law can be perverted. Of course, I would also say the gospel can be perverted. <laughs> I mean, you read about that and read, if nothing else, Galatians 1, but other a number of other biblical texts. So any good aspect of God's revelation, true aspect of revelation, can be and has been perverted. And that's why we need a constant return to biblical exegesis and theology and the proper understanding of the written law of God, which is, has been said, and also the law woven inherently in creation. I was just going to add, uh, I agree with what Andrew said there, certainly, uh, that when you think of legalism in that sense, it is, uh, it's really looking to the law as, as a means of personal righteousness, that, that I can use this to become righteous, uh, rather than if you think of, especially in the Christian life, of the second greatest commandment, and uh, that really the law ultimately is meant for us as a, on a horizontal level, as a means to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'd like yes. to add quickly, Eric, uh, the Old Testament itself did not teach salvation by law. It's remarkable how many Christians seem to believe, well, the Old yeah. Testament taught, salva- taught salvation by law, mm-hmm. but in the New Testament, Christ came, and now uh, that view has been changed. I think it was, uh, some of you know, the theologian, 20th century theologian, John Gerstner, he had a little clever statement. He said about dispensationalists, he says, it's amazing. They're antinomians in the Old Testament, or legalists in the Old Testament, and antinomians in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you believe in salvation by law. We get to the New Testament, and law doesn't even bind Christians. Both of those are false. Both Old and New Testament teach that salvation is entirely by the grace of God. And the Old Testament, of course, looking forward, uh, prospectively to Christ, um, and also in both Old and New Testament, that man is bound by God's law, not as a means of justification, but certainly as a foundation for how we live our lives. That uh, I'm glad that Andrews used that term because I think another way to think about legalism, maybe that will help round it out, is um, it's the attempt to use the law of God to establish one's justification. In other words, to to gain one's gain a gain our salvation or gain our standing, righteous standing before God, whereas the proper use of the law of God is to recognize that Christ accomplished it for us, but then He turns around and He turns us back over to that law for our sanctification, for our growth and holiness. So. If I may uh, chime in as well, um, I agree with what's been said, and I would simply add this, that legalism, as I think of it in terms of New Testament categories and, and, um, and New Testament revelation, legalism is, is what Jesus encounters in the Pharisees, and and Paul encounters in them and in Judaizers. And as I said earlier, the fundamental issue that they are encountering is not a kind of groveling works righteousness. As a matter of fact, they were rather confident of themselves. They weren't groveling. They were confident of themselves. 
what they are encountering in this, these folks, is the treatment of the mosaic law as an end in itself. Yes. And thus not terminating upon Christ, but terminating in upon their actions and their obedience to it, which of course is exactly what they weren't doing. They were they were falling very very far short of their obedience of obeying the law, and 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 to reinforce a point that uh, Andrew made, if we if we take a look, for example, at Jesus's encounter with the rich young ruler who comes to him and asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus does not say, well, son, what you must do is you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Right. He doesn't say that. He says this, <clears throat> why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Here, now I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> you know the commands. You know the commandments, don't you? You shall, uh, you shall love the Lord. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, and so forth and so on. And and the man says, "But teacher, all these I have kept since I was a, a boy." And then Jesus comes back, and and he does not say, "Well, look, you lack one thing. Um, what you need to do is you need to you need to um, come forward in a, in some church service, and uh, <laughs> and believe in Jesus." He doesn't say that. What he says is, you lack one thing. Here's what you must do. You must obey me now. Go sell everything that you have. Give the proceeds to the poor, and then you must follow me, and then you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, Jesus gives another command. So the problem is not that the law commands and the gospel yes. does something else. The law commands... And the man is deluded to think that he has properly obeyed these things. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is pointing, pointing him, pointing to him this, that you've, you are treating the law as an end in itself. What you must do is you must treat the law as terminating on me. I am greater than Moses. Moses has commanded you this, but I'm greater than Moses. So obey me. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. And and Jesus does, and Jesus, as the new Moses, gives a command. And that command has everything to do with bowing before him as king and lord. Amen. Great, great exposition. Let me um summarize. So so when we talk about God's law and talking about what Ardell just did. What is what are the three uses of law? Meaning, what is the right attitude by which we must approach God? How does the law both humble us and then also redeem us, if we could say it in that sense? Well, the, the law shows us our sin. Okay. All right. It shows us the character of God. It shows us that Christ must fulfill the law. But then uh, and then it also restrains. Um, the unregenerate. So the, those those are your first two uses. It 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 shows us our sin, drives the 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 elect to Christ. It restrains the evil of the unregenerate. But then it the third use is that it is used by God to he he turns us back over to the law 
for our sanctification. So as it, as it is, it, it drives us to Christ for our justification. And then for the Christian, it's used by God to drive us to Christ again, as it were, for our sanctification, our growth and holiness. But it's also important then to see also that other use, that it is used by God to restrain the the evil of the unregenerate. And this takes us back again to Romans 2, where Paul says that the works of the law are written on the hearts uh, of every human being. And that sort of takes us back again to the our previous right. discussion at the beginning. We're going to follow a law. The question is, is it God's law or the law of man in any sort of way? Another way we could say that is we're going to fear something. What do we give the highest authority to? That which we fear, we will give authority to. And that which we give authority to, we will follow and obey. Is it man and the fear of man or is it God and the fear of God? So here's a couple of questions, and we're, which is not a surprise to me once we talked about this. But I, I want to hit a couple of these questions in, in summation in about the 15 minutes we have left. In light of the answer about mask mandates, some churches have decided to follow the mandate because law enforcement are enforcing the mandate and they don't want to be found not complying. Uh, maybe they use Romans 13 in one sense. How does one respond to that in light of what's been said? Are we breaking the law of man by not complying with the mask mandate in the church? Are we breaking God's law? Or, or are we disobeying the government? Or how, how does that work? How do we how do we deal with the competing laws in these situations? Well, I don't know about anybody else and in terms of the various states that people are living in, but certainly in North Carolina, where I live, um, churches took the governor to court and they won handily. They won easily uh, precisely because um, we have a constitution um, that establishes that the neither the federal government or a state government or any local government um, has authority over the church. Uh, what takes place in churches uh, is determined by church leaders. And it's, it's past time that church leaders uh, recognized that and started exercising their God-given authority and act uh, in concert with the fact that they ought to be fearing God more than they fear man. That's the kind of leaders that God's people need. How should we approach church leadership as laymen? Uh, how do we approach the leadership in our churches who are mandating masks and requiring members to return and submit if they have temporarily been attending elsewhere in good faith? So if, if again, if the requirement is in order to be here, you've got to, man, you, you've got to wear a mask, how do we approach our church leadership? And how do we deal with that issue? Well, they should approach church leadership humbly, but uh, gently remind them that church leadership may not impose requirements that are not found in the law of God. I think that's this. This applies not only to masks, but church leaders can mandate that God's people worship. Uh, on the Lord's Day. They can't mandate that you be there three nights a week for prayer meetings. Uh, and this is true across the board. But I would gently go to your elders and your church leaders in a very humble attitude and remind them of that. 
this, by the way, is an is an old battle. Our Puritan forefathers fought this battle against some of the establishment Anglicans in the Anglican Church. The state cannot impose requirements in the churches. Dave and Bob just said, or requirements uh, of worship. That is the responsibility of the church as an independent body. The state cannot impose those requirements. So the church has its own independent authority, its own sphere under God, and should act in terms of its own authority and not just automatically default and submit to the authority of another sphere. We could also make, we could also make the case that we must be careful not to take Paul's exhortations from Romans 13 exactly and directly from what he is saying within the framework of a dictatorship over into our situation, which is not a dictatorship. That's right. We must acknowledge that within the framework of our constitutional democratic republic that there is no king except lex Uh law law is king we are that is that that is what distinguishes and that is what is utterly unique about the united states of america the rule of law over against the rule of a man and and therefore what we must we, we, what we must be capable of doing as ministers of the God's word is to, to understand the situation in which we find ourselves, which means that we need to understand the Constitution, and we need to understand constitutional government so that we remind the governor that he is not king. Yes. And that we remind we remind our local magistrates that they are not kings and queens, but that they are part of a system that is the rule of law. And, and, and remind them that they are to reward those who do good and to punish those who do evil. And there is nothing quite as repugnant and offensive as governors who are punishing shopkeepers who desire, who need to keep their shops open so that they can make a living so that they can feed their families while they let prisoners out of prison lest they get covid i mean we have come into we've come into a thoroughly bastardized treatment of the law by those who dictate who dare to dictate now to the church that you have to do this and you have to do that Ministers of the gospel need to stop being timid mm-hmm. and and actually preach sermons like men of old to the kings, those who at least who think they're kings, right. and and remind them who they are and what they're about and what their role is God, in, under in God's uh, ordination. Let me also add to that for the question about the church leadership and the mask mandate, when you go to your leadership, also help them to understand the horizontal aspect of not following God's law. Meaning, what does a mandate like this do for us? Well, it may protect us from government authorities for a little while, or it may potentially help us from 
a virus, which again, we, let's argue, let, agree <laughs> if it does or not. Well, what does it do to us? And the problem is, and, and at our church, one of the reasons we decided not to was just the whole effect of when did safety become the highest law? Amen. What defines safety? Mm-hmm. Who in your church gets to define safety? What is the penalty for not being safe enough? Meaning, if little kids aren't wearing a mask, what do we do with them and their parents? Um, basically, the, the, the concern we have was church conflict. Any sort of legalistic law like this creates conflict for anybody to enforce in any subjective way they want to. The mm-hmm. other question we had is, okay, if we add this, when do we end it? And who determines that we are safe enough? Right. So that would be my challenge for any church leadership, but I have challenged some on that. Okay, if it's not this, when do you end this? And what is the next thing coming down the pipeline? Like, what mm-hmm. will this do to protect the body, but also what will it do to hurt the body? What's right. going on within your church that right now by these that is creating turmoil or angst or potential conflict? Yeah, that's a that is a superb statement. I mean, I just uh, that yes. was truly remarkable. Eric, I think we need to understand that this really is at root a worldview conflict. I think church leaders need to understand that. Uh, Almost all politicians today, certainly those issuing these oppressive orders, are embracing an entirely secular or neo-pagan worldview. They're going to bring that worldview to their political decisions. The church operates in terms of an entirely different worldview, a creational biblical worldview. Therefore, there is going to be a conflict. We cannot buy into the premises of this secular worldview just because politicians have the power of the sword. It's a false worldview, and we need to resist it. I might add, just it's kind of piggybacking what Andrew just said, that I, I have thought from the beginning, and I still maintain, that perhaps the chief problem with the wearing of the masks is that you are reinforcing a false narrative. Uh, This is a lie. The statistics show that this is a lie. This is is not uh, as grave a danger as it has been made out to be. Uh, Even the statistics that, frankly, we know have been sloppily uh, recorded and reported, at best sloppily, if not sinisterly uh but just just look at the statistics face value that have been given to us and do the simple math and you will recognize that uh, covid is not a grave danger to the vast majority of people it is a danger to a very very small demographic what we have are people in this country leaders who have decided that they are going to make the United States something that the United States was never intended to be. They've decided that that they're going to start acting like kings and queens and and treating the common people like subjects. Um, This is in violation of our Constitution. We have every right, just as Paul did as a Roman citizen, to appeal to our citizenship uh, within the United States. Um, that is that is not unbiblical, and to 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 turn church decisions over to the government it is, in my estimation, one of the most heinous things that can be going on 
And the men who are doing that ought to think seriously about stepping down. I'd uh, conclude with the exhortation to all of us to read the 119th Psalm very slowly Mm. and to ask whether our view of the law of God is as high as the psalmist's view. Mm. And then ask ourselves if we have not bought into false theology, which tends to pit law against gospel and to diminish the authority of God's law. And simply to remind everybody that within Psalm 119, the psalmist, or if you prefer, the palmist. Um, <laughs> nice. Says that the law of God is my delight. Uh, I delight in your law. That is that is entirely subversive to this false dichotomy of law gospel. I I think we can't take the mask mandates seriously because the people that are mandating the masks aren't taking it serious either. Yes. The kinds of the kinds of masks that pass off that pass for that are passing today are not adequate enough as a professional mask wearer in the maritime industry. These masks are not adequate enough. If, if this was a serious, serious thing, then the kinds of masks they would be mandating wouldn't be the kinds of masks that are passing off today. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't be that we don't know the breakthroughs of these, the, all the various masks that are out there, designer masks. We don't know the exposure limits. We don't know any of that stuff. I mean, technically, we, if we're wearing these cloth masks, we should be changing them every five minutes because there is no rating, OSHA rating or anything on them. So we can't take these mask mandates serious until they take them serious. The statistics just don't play it out. Well, let's pray. Mm-hmm. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time you've graced us with. Uh, we count it a privilege, Lord, to be able to gather together as uh, believers in Christ. I thank you for uh, each one here that you brought. I thank you for these men that uh, you've gathered together as well to uh, teach and instruct. And we thank you for what you have done for them through the gospel. We thank you for what you've graced them with, Lord, in service to the church and the body of Christ. And we just pray you might uh, continue to uh, guide, direct, and strengthen, Lord, each one uh, in their various places of, of service and ministry in the church. Lord, we we pray for the church in our day, especially as uh, we face, Lord, difficult days. Um, Lord, when it seems the love of many is growing cold, Lord, when so, so many uh, are not going to worship. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you might send uh, a, a reformation and a revival. You would stiffen the spines, Lord, of your servants and pastors and church leaders. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would be bold in preaching the gospel. We pray that they would be wise in shepherding their flocks. And Lord, we, uh, we just pray that you would not allow them to fear man, but uh, it would be clear that we are a people who, who fears the living God. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that we would be a people who uh, truly, as the psalmist says, uh, delights, Lord, in your law, loves it, treasures it, uh, finds it sweet and good, 
because in it we find you. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the Lord.